This reading is from the book of Esther, chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Then Mordecai went out from the king's presence in blue and white royal robes with a large gold crown and also a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Shushan shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, there was light and gladness, joy and honor. Throughout every province and throughout every city, wherever the king's edict and his law went, the Jews had gladness and joy, banquets and holidays. Many peoples of the land became Jews because the fear of the Jews had overcome them. The word of the Lord. Because often I don't know how, how familiar some of these things are uh, for people. And, you know, year after year, um, sometimes you think, wow, it's the same, uh, same days, the same holy days. And what do you say differently? And it's like the fact of the matter is, is that we don't necessarily have to, uh, you know, come up with like the 199 ways to, to cook, cook manna. You know what I mean? It's the same manna. We've got to figure out how to make it interesting and different. Um, the Word of God is active and alive, right? And it, it pierces and it keeps working until it, uh, until it penetrates us, right? So the message is still the message. It is good. Um, when it comes to the book of Esther, um, because we're running a little short, I, I won't give a, the full synopsis because I think most of us are probably familiar with the book in general and we've kind of put some pieces together from what's been said already here. Um, and uh, it is a good, it's a, it's a book worthy of study. Uh, there's a lot of different, different things we can, we can glean from the book. Um, and so I would recommend that uh, if you haven't read it for a while, that you read it again. It's 10 chapters, or chapter 10 is only this, this big, and, and in general, it's a, it's a story, so these are the kind of things that, you know, they're pretty quick, keep you reading and so forth. I'd recommend you read it again, and hopefully some of the things I say today might uh, cause you to look at, look at some things in a little different, different way. Um, and also, you can come out on Wednesday, and we're going to get through as much of the book as we can. We're not exactly sure if we're just going to go from beginning to end, or start and stop, or shotgun in some, some respect. But come out on Wednesday. Uh, also online, there's some messages from the past that we've given. I know a couple years ago, uh, I gave one. It's got that, that title, and Rabbi Chaim has given some. So I recommend you go back and, and, and take this time. That's what's good, I think, about these, these appointed times, in a sense, although this is not one of the Leviticus 23 appointed times. It is clearly an appointed uh, festival in the Bible. And it's, it, these are good times for us to stop and reflect on these uh, specific uh, messages. And, and it's kind of cool that this whole book is sort of the, the, the festival. Um, so, again, it is, it is a very study-worthy study uh, book. And there's a lot of relevance, I think, for us today. Um, this idea of uh, you know living in a in a foreign land, um, kind of being in that position between having to be synchronized, so to speak, with the the ruling authorities. You know, Romans thirteen tells us to do that. But then we've got the other side of the equation of when are we supposed to submit to our heavenly authority, and where those two things conflict and intersect, and it's it's real dicey sometimes. You know. Um, so it's relevant to us in that respect. This story is, of course, very relevant to, to Jews today um, <clears throat> as the threat to Jewish people and the desire of others to not have them around. Um, you know, that's, that's part of everyday current events, you know. I don't have to look very far to read about that. So it's a concern for Jews, but it's also a concern uh, for many non-Jews who, like many Persians in the story, and what was just read a moment ago, and I'll talk a little bit about uh, later as well, um, for those non-Jews who make a conscious decision to join themselves to Jews. I know that resonates with a lot of the people that are in this room, for sure, that are here today. So again, if you want some, some different perspectives and things, I recommend that you, you kind of look at the, the story through those lenses. It's very, very relevant and, and current. Um, 
But what I would like to do with, with the, uh, the time we have remaining is to zero in on a couple, of, uh, couple parts of the story today, one that was just read. Um, but first, before I get to that part that was just read, I want to look at a portion that comes a little bit earlier in the book. And it was actually read during the responsive reading today. It's one of those you know, famous passages that the people definitely know the, the passage sounds familiar, even if they didn't know it's from the book of Esther. And that uh, was read from chapter 4. Again, it was in your responsive reading. It's not the climax of the story. Uh, when you read Esther, it's not the climax, but it is certainly a very um, pivotal, pivotal point of the story. And that's in chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. Um, and again, that was read earlier. This is where you know, Mordecai had just found out about the edict to, to kill all the Jews and all the land and all the governing areas. And he becomes very distressed, and he, he weeps and wails and wears sackcloth and ashes, and that's when Esther um, hears him, knows that he's got a, sort of a commotion going on, and, and sends out her servants to find out what's happening. And he tells her the bad news, and uh, he asks Esther then to get involved, to get involved by telling the king, asking him to come to uh, the aid of this situation. And, you know, she hesitates at this idea, um, explains kind of why it's probably not such a good idea for her to do that, how it could cost her her life because no one's supposed to go see the king. Many of us know, know this part of the story. And so you can understand her reluctance. You know, if I go there unannounced, I could be killed, and what good is that going to do, and so forth. And so you can kind of understand, understand uh, her reluctance to get involved. And that's when Mordecai says those very famous lines, Again, we read them earlier, but I'm going to read them again. He says, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your, fa- and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. And so, you know, there was Esther. Try to Consider her, her position for a moment. You know, she was, just, she was cruising along pretty well, if you know the story. I mean, she, she had received favor from the people. She had a pretty good position, a good job, if you will, <laughs> in some ways. Um, some ways we could probably say, well, I don't like that part of it. But in, 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 in general, she received a lot of favor. She was well-liked. Um, she had servants. Um, everything was provided for in her life. And, you know, why jeopardize all of that? Why jeopardize that life? Can you relate to that at all? I mean, personally, um, I'm not a fan of drama, <laughs> and I don't mean like theater, I mean drama, like drama. Uh, I like to avoid trouble, uh, and if there is trouble, I'd prefer to, uh, to get along by not getting along, if you know what I mean, uh, to stay out of harm's way, whether it be physically stay out of harm's way. You know, I'm not, I was never the guy that went down to the Washington, D.C. on July 4th for the fireworks. You know, I like, are you kidding me? There's a zoo down there. There's going to be a lot of drama and drunk, all kinds of stuff. You know, maybe the same in Denver. So I'm going to stay out of the way physically. I want to stay out of the way, you know, emotionally. Uh, I'd prefer just to maybe not even get, in, get involved relationally if it's a matter of if it's going to stir up some drama. Um, my mom always sort of talked about, you know, you work hard and keep your nose clean. Uh, that was her saying, in other words, stay out of the drama business, you know. And so, I don't know about you, but I think most of us at some point in our lives have probably said something along the lines of, you know, I've just got to learn how to start saying no more often. You know, just, just, just got to learn how to say no. I'm sure some of you have said that. Um, interestingly, I, you know, if you Google that, that kind of idea, don't Google it now, please. Where's Chris? No, don't, <laughs> don't, don't Google it now. 
But if you were to Google, like, you know, how to say no, I mean, believe me, there's lots of hits, you know. Uh, how to say no, even to your best friend. How to say no without offending somebody. How to say no in, I think it was 20 easy steps with illustrations, you know. It's like <laughs> 21 good ways to give a good no. I mean, they're, they're there, you know. And uh, Esther had a real good reason. She had some really good reasons, more than 21 probably. Real good reasons to say no. And we often do too. We often have lots of good reasons to say no. Um, but I think that we need to also learn how to say yes sometimes. But the key distinctive, though, is to not say yes out of guilt. I must be honest. I mean, Mordecai was laying on some good Jewish guilt uh, at that point. Um, but we've got we to learn the distinctive of, of we need to learn when to say yes and how to say yes, not from a position of, of guilty, being guilty, but learn to say yes by, by coming to grips with uh, knowing that God has made you, that he knows your situation, that he didn't make any mistakes. He has structured all of your experiences and everything about you in a very unique way. Um, where you grew up, who your family was, what your experiences were, uh, all these things you did and you've done in your life, none of them being mistakes. You know, there's a uniqueness that each one of us has, um, a, a uniqueness that God has made, a uniqueness that it has poised each and every one of us to be used in a very specific way. Um, I think it was last year. At some point, I had a, a taillight go out on my, my van, and um, it's, in, it's, got a lift, it's got a lift gate on the van. And so I had to dismantle it's a mecha- uh, motorized one. I had to d- dismantle it to actually get to the light. Toyotas are usually wonderful. For some reason, this was the most real pain in the butt to get to. Um, so I had to take there's this little arm. There was two little like round uh, things, like, like ball and socket, like shoulder joint kind of things. And there was a bar that connected the, the motor and then the, the piston. So I'm talking to Nick right now. Obviously, he's probably the only one listening to this exciting mechanical story. But uh, those two, uh, those ball and socket joints, the, the, I finally figured out they were, they, were, they were held on by this little clip, like a little, it wasn't a spring, but it was a clip that just fit over there, perfectly snapped into place and held them in place. So I took the clips off, got the light changed, went to put the clips back on, the two clips, and I found one clip. I mean, the thing's like, you know, as big as a finger. I mean, it's tiny. And I'm looking all around for the clip and um, didn't find the clip. So I'm trying to fashion something. And I made something that, that, that kind of worked, you know. Um, but it really wasn't what I wanted. Uh, what I really wanted was that daggone clip. And uh, it's funny that later on I found that it had grease on it. It had, it had sprung and stuck to my shirt. And so it was actually there. So I found the clip and it was... It was, this, it was this perfect thing. But, you know, no matter what I was trying that, that, you know, to, to, to use something different, that clip was really what I needed. I mean, the thing was perfect, perfectly shaped. I'm trying to shape something out of, you know, it's kind of looked similar in a sort of way. But it wasn't really what, what was supposed to, to be there. Um, each of us is like that unique clip, you know, that exact piece that God can and will use for the kingdom. He'll use a different one if he has to. But why not trust him for what he had in mind in the first place? You know, Every, again, everything about you and your background has put you in the exact position you are right now, in the exact position like Esther was, to, to be willing to courageously, not guilt-ridden, but courageously say yes. When the time is right, even in the face of, of fear or doubt or uncertainty. So what things are you holding back doing right now at a time such as this? Yes, I see that hand. No, 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 one, no one's answering that one, right? What is it that you're holding back doing at a time such as this? 
It might not necessarily be some monumental uh, decision like Esther's, you know, with life and death in the balance, but the pattern is still the same. The pattern is still the same. The, the pattern of, you know, God is present, whether you see him or not. You know, that's the big thing about the book of Esther that I'm not getting into. I don't have time to get into all that. You know, God's name's not mentioned, and people make a big deal about that. Um, maybe we'll talk about that on Wednesday. But so times when you think, you know, God's not present, whether you see him, whether you recognize him, or whether you hear from, hear from him explicitly, you know, what are the decisions that maybe you're, you're holding back on not doing? Because nonetheless, he is there. He's in control. He's doing things. He's going to do things regardless. He might just have to use someone else. That's what the text means when it says that deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. Um, I, I, I don't believe, if you read about that phrase, um, I personally don't believe that's a, a very you know, a veiled reference to God explicitly. You know, I believe certainly that that's the image, that yes, God's going to provide something else. But it's not a matter, some people want to say that the other place is really God. That's actually anachronistic, if you will. That idea really didn't exist yet, the idea of God being called the place. But in any event, the point is, very simply, that God will use someone else to accomplish his purposes and keep his promises. That part is true. In other words, he'll use a different clip if he has to. As with Esther, we can choose whether or not we're going to be part of it. We can choose whether or not we're going to act. It's not going to alter, you know, God's plans overall, whether or not we do or don't, you know? So, for you, will it be saving the kingdom, your action? Maybe, but it could be a lot simpler. It could be a lot simpler thing you're being called to do at a time such as this. Uh, it could just be something like speaking up at work, maybe. Um, being explicit about your faith with a coworker, with a family member, with a neighbor, or an acquaintance or something. In Esther's case, she stepped out of her comfort zone a bit. But overall, I want you to see that she didn't become somebody that she wasn't. She didn't become something or somebody that she was not already. She put on her robes, it says, before she went out and spoke. She didn't go get Greg's robe. You know, didn't get Greg's robe or anything. She got, she got her own robe. She went out there. She exercised the authority that she'd been given. She acted as herself within her own, within her own realm of where she'd, where she'd been placed. And we all have some kind of authority. We all have some kind of realm, if you will. You never probably thought of yourself as, a, as having a realm, but you do. You've got some kind of access to somebody. You've got some kind of access to something. Maybe it's not access to the king of the land, necessarily. But you have access to someone that only you have access to. And there are times when you need to say yes, and you need to exercise authority in that realm of yours. Not, not push for your rights or your preferences, but exercise what God has given you in the place where he has put you regardless of how excited you might be or how not excited you might be to do it. You know, Esther held the office of queen. We all have an office of some type. Uh, might have the office of husband or wife or spouse or co-worker, friend, neighbor, son, daughter, brother, niece, nephew, I don't know. But again, if you're like me, you would probably much rather simply do your own thing and mind your own business. <laughs> that way you don't step on anybody's toes you don't extend yourself, you don't risk failure, you don't risk offense, you don't risk mistakes. But I want to suggest that, quite frankly, that line of thinking is not really a humble position necessarily. It's really an arrogant position. Thinking about yourself so much, what people will think of you if you fail. So you're reluctant to act, you're reluctant to, to speak up, you're reluctant to share, you know, oh, I don't want to give a testimony, whatever. That, someone else can do it a little better, whatever. Quite frankly, that's, that's, that's the height of arrogance. 
Would Esther, would she have perished like Mordecai said? Was that just guilt? I mean, would she, was she surely going to die? People want to argue that Mordecai was threatening to kill her. You know, you believe that? The point is, would she have died? Was there a real threat? We don't know. Maybe, maybe not. We could, we could look at it all kinds of ways. And would her identity have been known? Would she have been protected by the king? We don't know. We don't really know that. But how would she have felt? How would she have felt if she hadn't spoken up? And then help, you know, she would have then seen help come from somewhere else. Especially when she knew she had the ability to, to do something, when she had the ability to act. You know, I don't know, but I think for us, um, in situations like that, where we had an opportunity, didn't take it, uh, that I think in those cases, our faith takes a bit of a hit, a negative hit. I mean, have you ever felt the urge to do something? You ever felt the urge to, to say something, but were hesitant? For some of you, I know that's not an issue. No offense. But, uh, you know, maybe you're not afraid to speak up, speak your mind, that kind of thing. But some of us are. For the rest of us folks, you know, we might be. You know, ever been part of a, of a conversation maybe where people are very open about their political view and it's pretty clear that they're not taking your position and, and their position is very much against not just your personal, I mean, your personal beliefs, but you believe that they're rooted in Scripture and you think, ah, oh, just what's the point of arguing? What's the point of, of saying something um, so you don't speak up? Or maybe you're, maybe you've been in public before and, and folks around you are going a bit overboard with foul language and you're there with your wife or your kids or something. And you wanted to say something, but you know what? You just didn't, you didn't say anything. And I'm not talking about getting in a fight. I'm just talking about speaking up at a time such as that. You know, maybe someone else spoke up instead. You know, I mean, how'd you feel? You know, maybe maybe you've hesitated, for example, um, to serve in an area of ministry, thinking that someone else, yeah, someone else should, someone else could, someone else would do it instead of you. And sure enough, someone else did. And maybe you wished you had. Either way, your fear, your hesitancy, your concern for what others think of you, I believe caused you to take a hit spiritually uh, and emotionally. And all of those decisions, big and small, to stand up for the kingdom or to not stand up, those are defining moments in your life. And over time, they develop, they develop you. They develop you into the person that you are. And Esther was right there too. You know, she was right on the edge. And her, if you read, if you read on further, her ultimate decision after being being kind of confronted with this was, "I'll do it, I'll do it." And if I perish, I perish. That was her her ultimate decision. And and if you read that, I don't want you to, to read that as a um, like a statement of futility, like, "Oh well, there's nothing else I can do." Kind of like it's an escape route or she had, you know that kind of thing. She was simply coming to grips with with the danger. I think. And the statement that she made there, it recognizes the possibility of failure, but also expresses hope. Expresses hope, but not the certainty. Not the certainty, but the hope of success. Esther wasn't passive, just saying, well, I guess I'll do it, and God's going to have to make a miracle happen here. That wasn't it at all. You know, she was, if you actually read further, she was determined to work her way through this crisis with courage. I mean, the, she goes from all of a sudden being this, you know, this person that Mordecai said, do this, do that, you're going to go here, and, then, and, and, and all this stuff, too. She's told Mordecai, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going you're to tell the people to pray, to fast. She didn't say pray. She said fast. Um, other versions of the Bible, by the way, Septuagint, the Greek versions, will actually have more, some references to God and so forth. Um, but she said, you know, she started getting very direct um, 
and made all these decisions. And you see her making this very calculated, uh, savvy plan of, of, of attack here, um, if you will, putting in this motion this master plan. But it was this very small decision of hers initially, this very small decision to act at a time such as that, that really just produced, or, or God produced through that decision, this landslide of, of, uh, of results, this landslide of results, um, these amazing reversals that you read about in the story. The book is all full of reversals. It was this way, and now it's completely the other way. It was started off this way, and now it's completely the other way. started off with that decision of hers. And I hope that you uh, can look at her example and, and see that as a, a, a source of motivation, source of motivation for you. In part, part of that, of that landslide of results that happened from her decision um, was what was read today. That was in, let's look at it again. That's in, in chapter 8, verses 15 to 17. It says, Then Mordechai, you know, actually I said Mordechai. Oh, this is Mordechai. That's I was just in chapter 4. This is Mordechai now. Then Mordechai went out from the presence of the king, wearing royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a mantle of fine linen and purple, while the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews there, for the Jews, there was light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict came, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a festival and a holiday. Furthermore, many of the peoples of the country professed to be Jews because the fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. So this is a big picture of rejoicing after this tremendous reversal of events. Kind of the big one. You know, the order from on high that was from the highest authority, uh, earthly authority known to the people, the king, uh, to then a completely reversed situation where the Jewish people were not only now safe, but they were kind of like uh, in style. They were, the, <laughs> they were now in charge, in a sense, through Mordecai, and they were favored by everybody. So is that it? Is that the final goal? Is that why we stand in the gap, and is that why we take a stand just so we can rejoice in the reversal, just so we can you know, experience the good fortune, so that we can uh, see the obvious hand of God at work in our circumstances. In other words, do we do that? Do we take that step of courage? Do we, do we stand at, if, at a time such as this just so that we can see a personal turnaround in our lives? I think that's quite frankly what a lot of us are really standing on and believing for and really want. And I'm not saying it's a bad, bad thing per se, but it can't be the end of the story. Can't be it. Can't be the final goal. How about what we see here? This is, uh, namely, revival. Revival among others. We see in the text people turning to God as a result. Now, this is where it gets kind of fun. The translations, I think uh, uh, Kate's translation said that they, they became Jews. <laughs> you see all kinds of translations here in this text. It's, it's interesting. You can see that the people, all the other people became Jews. And... Uh, other, it might even range from became Jews to some more unflattering translation I've read said, uh, it's actually pretty good, it's an academic translation, says pretended to be Jews. <laughs> Others say that they came alongside the Jews. Plenty of debates on interpretation here. So I went to the highest source in the land checking out this word because it's a word that's seen only once in the Bible. And uh, that source is on the third row there in the black shawl uh, from, uh, from, from Canada. And so it's a very interesting term. I won't get into the details that she boggled my mind with. But um, the bottom line is, for the sake of time, I'll cut to the chase with the correct interpretation, of course. 
Um, no one converted, this is not converted, no one converted to Judaism here. Uh, that's a whole other conversation that we could have. Um, that idea, that idea of, of conversion, certainly the modern day uh, idea of conversion, that certainly didn't exist at the time. We're not talking about people converting, no one's becoming a Jew. Uh, were they pretending? Were they being insincere, based on fear, wanting to save their skin, hoping to be in style? <laughs> yes and no. Um, yes, the text is very clear that they were motivated. Certainly uh, there was a number that were motivated by fear. And this is not the typical word that's used for, you know, oh, the fear of God kind of thing. This is like just terror, <laughs> like good old-fashioned, they were scared. Uh, no question. But also... I do think it's a no. Uh, You see the no side of things uh, regarding how those people, those same people, did end up sticking around even after some of the excitement had died down. Over in chapter 9, as you get further on in the story, and it talks about the festival a little more, uh, verse 27, in in chapter 9, verse 27, we read that the Jews established and accepted as a custom for themselves and their descendants and all who joined them. Most of your translations probably say that all who joined them, because it says the ones who joined them (laughs) there, um, that without fail they would continue to observe these two days every year as it is written and at the time appointed. So the idea of, you know, they became Jews or professed to be Jews is really the same idea as what we see here. It's pretty much all those people who who joined alongside, who came alongside them. And again, that that speaks to a lot of us in, in the room today as well. But either way, Regardless how we want to get into that, and did they convert? Were they scared? Were they, was it really a genuine repentance? Was it a genuine revival? You're talking about, you know, just not the reversal of your personal circumstances here, but the idea of revival. Is that really what's going on here? Um, the bottom line is that people came to God, for sure, when, as, as we read further on and see what happened. And quite frankly, sometimes it is in a moment of fear, uh, facing death perhaps, Maybe it's a narrow escape from something. Um, maybe it's when you experience a great blessing or, or a miracle or a victory. That is when you come to the Lord, you know? And people come to believe in God and follow, you know, follow him from all different kinds of paths. They, and when you start finding out what people came from or what they were thinking and so forth, they come from all kinds of different directions. And God can certainly redirect, can't he? He can certainly grow people. It's, uh, it's not a problem. We read in Philippians 1, 15 uh, to 18, you're probably familiar with that passage. Paul says, you know, some people are preaching the Messiah out of selfish ambition and this and that. And, you know, they're not doing it. They're, they're doing it for you know, so other people are doing it for, from goodwill, from legitimate purposes and so forth, the legitimate motivations. Some are doing it sincerely. Some are doing it insincerely. But what does he say? He said, look, man, what's it matter? As long as Messiah is being proclaimed in every way, whether false motives are true, he said, that's what I rejoice in. So the big picture in all of this is that you know, not to get mired down and inward focused on your situation that you forget the larger impact, thinking about only the reversal of circumstances and your motivation for standing up is so that you know, your, kind of, your cause will be supported. The decision to step out, that is the first thing. The decision to step out is the first thing. To be willing to be used, even if it seems like failure could be a real possibility. And then, once you've done that, one other piece of the picture here is to use your skills, use the realm, use what God has you know, put in your life, the skills that God's given you, and nurture them. In other words, work on them, develop them. 
exercise them. You know, we talk about God doing the heavy lifting and so forth, and that's true. But um, there's no excuse for, you know, being lazy with what God's given you, you know. We work. We try to be as good as we can. We, we, we improve on ourselves. And that's part of the picture, too. Esther didn't just hope that God will do anything, and she didn't just fast for three days and say, oh, woke, woke up hungry and just went into the king. No, she, she dressed up. She still looked her best. She had a well-thought-out plan. It's obvious when he, he asked her, what is it you need? He could have said, they're coming to kill us, please. Uh. No, she, she, you know, you look at the process, how she, you know, why did she do this? She wanted to get the, the, the audience with Haman and did it twice and so forth. And so the point is, she worked on her skills, and we need to also. You know, and God will make up for your shortcomings. That's not a problem. I mean, you look at, look at Esther. You know, even in a, in a pagan king's harem, she was able to make a choice and act for God, and that act resulted in success for her, yes, and success for her people, but again, revival for others as well. And how about you? You know, how about you? At its core, Esther is a book about the struggle to be faithful in the midst of an increasingly adverse culture. It's a story of courage. It's a story of faith. It's a story of deliverance. And it's the story of, of, of people, men and women, working together with a God who is not always obvious, right? Not always very apparent, but yet nonetheless is always gracious and is always the one who provides and who sees to it. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this example, for this example that you gave us in the book of Esther. I pray, Lord, that each person here today and every person that ever hears, that ever reads, that ever studies this book, Lord, that they would clearly see your hand throughout, that that would not be a source of doubt or concern whether or not this story, this book really belongs, Lord, in the Bible. And I pray, Lord, that each person would also receive the courage that they need to take those actions, steps of faith that you're wanting to use them for. Help each of us, Lord, to put aside our concerns of what others might think of us or what we might think of the possible outcomes and failures that might come as a result of our decision to, uh, to be that unique clip, if you will, that you, that you have set aside for a particular purpose, Lord. And help us, Lord, to take our eyes off ourselves and off the reversals and the betterments of our own lives and situations and seek to become a part of a much farther-reaching impact for your kingdom. It's in Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.